Hello and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. Hey, I'm not Corey O'Flanagan. What has happened to the regular host? I'm Carl Weiser, filling in for Corey, who has been kind enough to give me the microphone so I could do this John Mellencamp episode. I am a big Mellencamp fan, so I'm looking forward to speaking with our guest, David Maschiatra, author of Mellencamp, American Troubadour. Topics today include the Johnny Cougar years, Small Town, Jack and Diane, and we're going to also find out a few underappreciated Mellencamp songs that we can give a listen to and what we can learn from Mellencamp's life and music. So please sit back and join us for this episode of the Song Facts Podcast, part of the Pantheon Network, the John Mellencamp episode. Hello and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast, where today it is the John Mellencamp episode. Our guest today, one who is very qualified to speak about Mr. Mellencamp, it is David Maschiatra, who is the author of Mellencamp, American Troubadour, a triumphant book which tells us all about Mellencamp and from a first-person perspective, he was able to interview John Mellencamp, which is not an easy thing to accomplish. And not only that, he was able to do it at Mellencamp's compound in Indiana, and he came out alive. He even has a picture to prove it. David Maschiatra, how are you today? Doing great. Uh, Thank you for having me today. So how did you get invited to the Mellencamp compound? Oh, well, that's a, it's a great question. And uh, yeah, it is a difficult invitation to receive, uh, if I can say that without sounding too self-indulgent. So in the first edition of my book, Mellencamp American Troubadour, uh, which you were kind enough to mention in your introduction, uh, I did not interview uh, John Mellencamp. I interviewed several of his band members, uh, several of his longtime associates, Uh, But he did not personally agree to give an interview. And then uh, the University Press of Kentucky published the book and mailed him a complimentary copy, of course, uh, in the hope that he would read it and perhaps even enjoy the experience. Uh, But it just sat uh, at his recording studio in Nashville, Indiana, until uh, two fans... Uh, one of whom emailed me to let me know, and the other will remain mysterious. Uh, outside of two separate of his con- two separate concerts he performed, uh, one in Iowa and one in Missouri, uh, told him you have to read this book, Mellencamp American Troubadour, that uh, it is a, a serious and thoughtful. Uh, study and exploration of his music and his painting, and that the author attempts to connect his music to larger socio-political and cultural issues, particularly in the Midwest. So those two endorsements sufficiently intrigued him uh, that he went and read the book that he knew had already been waiting for him. And the next thing I knew, I received a phone call from his manager 
relaying the message that John Mellencamp was grateful for the book and that he enjoyed reading it and uh, that I could come and check out the studio sometime. So uh, being the consummate writer and journalist, I immediately asked, well, when I make the visit, can I conduct an interview? And they agreed to it. So now uh, the University Press of Kentucky is putting out an updated paperback edition of the book uh, in May, uh, which will include a chapter uh, about that experience. So what was it like going to the Mellencamp compound? Well, it was it was so exciting because I discovered Mellencamp's music when I was uh, 12 or 13 years old. I was playing basketball with a friend and his older brother uh, put on a cassette tape of American Fool. And from the opening notes of Hurt So Good... fell in love with Mellencamp's music, fell in love with rock and roll. Uh, so it was surreal, uh, although he didn't record American Fool in the uh, recording studio in Indiana, it was surreal uh, sitting there waiting for him, uh, knowing that this is where so much of the music that has meant so much to me and millions of other people uh, originated. And on top of it, I was sitting there having a root beer with Carlene Carter, uh, who was, yeah, right, uh, who was recording uh, music with him at the time and rehearsing to go out on tour with them. So it was, it was really, as I said, a surreal moment. And it was also, however, uh, quite inspiring because I was sitting in a headquarters of creativity and looking at the souvenirs of a life spent in devotion to uh, music and art and to the amplification of his own voice. Uh, so then when he finally walked in, he was exactly as I would have expected. He had a cigarette dangling from his mouth and uh, a pompadour like Elvis Presley. And one of his, the first things he said to me was, it's a good book. Uh, so in his own plain spoken, simple way, uh, he gave me a great uh, moment. And what followed was one of the best conversations I've ever had. We spent about two hours together uh, in dialogue. And then I was able to watch he and his band, along with Carlene Carter, uh, run through a few classic songs like Rain on the Scarecrow and Paper and Fire. Uh, to rehearse for their upcoming tour. They were about a week away from going out on tour. What were your impressions of Mellencamp? Well, one of the first things he said to me when we sat down for the interview was, uh, he said, what do you got, about 20 minutes? And I said, you know, well, however long you would like. And he said, oh, well, great. That means we're done because I fucking hate interviews. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, Mellencamp, perhaps for some people, is a little tough to take 
because he's certainly unvarnished and unguarded. Uh, but I found that refreshing. And I found him a really honest and engaging and passionate guy uh, who didn't censor himself and who, despite having a reputation as quite surly and unfriendly, uh, was really generous with his time and uh, willing to discuss just about anything. So Prince had Paisley Park and Elvis had Graceland. Does Mellencamp's estate have a name or any kind of grandeur to it? The recording recording studio is called Belmont Mall, uh, and, but uh, there isn't really any grandeur in comparison to Prince or Elvis. Uh, speaking of Elvis, though, there is a parking space in the recording studio with a space reserved for Elvis, uh, because Mellencamp said, uh, you know, just in case the rumors and conspiracy theories are true that Elvis is alive, we want him to know that he's welcome to show up here anytime. <laughs> That's funny. So it's in outside of Bloomington, Indiana, right? Yes. And, and you, you drive through this small town of Nashville, which is just outside of Bloomington. And uh, it's a very rural and pastoral town. And if anybody has seen uh, the Tim Burton movie, Batman, when uh, Batman leads Vicki Vale, played by Kim Basinger, through the woods to the Batcave, that's what the drive to the studio is like. You're just you're on this very narrow rural route surrounded by forestry. And uh, I don't know what would have occurred if there was any oncoming traffic, because although it's a two lane road, it's probably one of the the most narrow roads I've ever driven. And then you turn into a little driveway and it's just this modest uh, green house that he converted into a recording studio in the 1980s. And when I pulled in, I could hear the band running through uh, Rain on the Scarecrow. So it was like, okay, I'm in the right place. And again, it's for someone who's a John Mellencamp fan, uh, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit I'm a big fan in addition to a journalist and a critic, but uh, it was a magical experience pulling into that driveway and again, recognizing, you know, this is where the record Scarecrow was recorded. This is where Lonesome Jubilee was recorded. This is the the epicenter for uh, Mellencamp's music and artistry. Did he ever move to the big city, do a little sojourn in Los Angeles, that kind of thing? Uh, no, not really. He, so he lived in New York briefly after first acquiring a record deal and he didn't like it. Uh, he didn't like the fact that to use his description, it felt like a click when everyone trying to outperform each other in terms of cool and the hip factor. And he also claims that he couldn't really find the right inspiration for songwriting in New York. And it wasn't until he went back to uh, Seymour, Indiana, the town where he grew up and got a small apartment that he could begin writing songs. So he's a unique artist in that respect, in that 
Uh, you know, many different artists come from small towns all over the country, all over the world. But no, he never um, lived in New York or Los Angeles or any of those commercial centers of uh, hustle and bustle activity. He always derived his, his inspiration from remaining in Indiana and remaining very close to the town where he grew up, the, the famous small town, like the song says. Stay tuned for more Song Facts Podcast right after this. Song Facts Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Guys, it is springtime officially. The weather is warming, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the gloom of winter doesn't hover over us. And without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. Well, the good news is that therapy works. And what is therapy? Well, it's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated, you need some tools to help out, maybe you're just feeling stressed or insecure in relationships, or maybe work has you down, or you're just not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and just start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, and we all know that that can happen. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Yes, it's that fast. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And now, a special offer to SongFacts podcast listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash songfacts. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash songfacts. Thank you again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the SongFacts podcast, and I hope you have a great day. So many artists who have gotten to his level you look back on their early work and you can see the brilliance right there like the beatles love me do was like their first song springsteen comes out of the gate with blinded by the light Mellencamp comes out and his first album is objectively bad it's called the chestnut street incident and the main song on it is called chestnut street small town streets too long I've been up with the winners down with the sinners and hung on this corner till dawn and my hands they have been tied to a life I've been denied I'm just a small town boy being used like a toy what's going on with this song and what does it tell us about early Mellencamp David Chestnut Street is the the main street in Seymour, Indiana, and uh, it is an objectively bad record. He probably put it best uh, during one of my conversations with him. He said, uh, if you only listen to my first record and know nothing that came after, you would think, why did this guy ever continue? Uh, He when he got a record deal in New York, he got a record deal thinking that he would only be a singer. Uh, He hadn't written any songs, but the record company and his management 
said, well, singer-songwriters are what's in high demand right now. Uh, people like Bruce Springsteen, people like Lennon and McCartney, uh, and you know Bob Dylan and all the rest. So he really had to learn his craft. And in that song, Chestnut Street, you could see him exploring some of the subject matter in terms of lyrics that would define his career, uh, life in small towns, particularly working class life, uh, struggles with the, the highs and lows of uh, ordinary American living. Uh, but the, many of the songs just fail to uh, register in terms of any type of artistic skill or thoughtful approach. And when I interviewed his longest running bandmate, uh, Mike Wanchik, his rhythm guitarist, uh, Wanchik said, you know, we knew that the songs weren't, weren't any good. So what we aspired to do was improve our ratio with every record. So with Chestnut Street Incident, you know, maybe only one out of the 10 songs was any good. But with the next, next record, maybe we could improve it to three or four. The... The meaning that I take from that is you're quite correct. You know, if you listen to Greetings from Asbury Park, Springsteen's debut record, there are so many great songs on that record. You listen to the Beatles debut, so many great songs. You listen to Led Zeppelin's first record. I mean, it just hits you like a knockout punch. And that is all really, uh, you know, magical to listen to those records and, and to consider that level of talent. But there's something perhaps even more inspiring and enlivening about following the career of someone like John Mellencamp, who worked hard to discover his craft, discover his own voice, and exercise and amplify it in a way that would eventually um, entertain and move and provoke and inspire people. Uh, in a way, it's more de democratic because it makes one consider how we all have boundless potential. And if we all dedicate ourselves to whatever craft we choose, uh, we can perhaps grow into uh, artists or journalists or professionals who can also excel. So it was really a labor of love on his part. And uh, obviously I feel he succeeded in the growth of an artist and obviously millions of others do as well. And he was Johnny Cougar on that album. Yes. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, since I've, since the first, since the first edition of my book, uh, Mellencamp American Troubadour came out in 2015, I've probably answered the question, why was he Johnny Cougar and then John Cougar and then John Cougar Mellencamp and then finally his real name, John Mellencamp. Uh, when he signed his first record deal, he had no awareness that they were going to demand that he change his name. He in fact found out when he looked at the cover art for his first record, the one you referenced just a moment ago. And he said, what is this Johnny Cougar? He said, first of all, Cougar is embarrassing. I mean, why would anyone call me Cougar? And then he said, second, nobody's ever called me Johnny in my whole life. I've always been John. And he said, I want to use my real name, John Mellencamp. And they said, we can't sell 
a guy named John Mellencamp. We could sell a guy named Johnny Cougar. And he said, well, I don't care. You know, I want to use John Mellencamp. And they said, well, if you don't agree to go by Johnny Cougar, you could go back to Indiana and do whatever it is you were doing there because we won't release the record. Uh, so with that ultimatum, he un uh, begrudgingly surrendered. And as he gained more success and more popularity and therefore more cachet and authority over his own career, he would eventually in various stages uh, record and tour under his own name. So his first album was 1978 and 1982 was his big breakthrough and his big breakthrough song was hurt so good, but that's not the song he's most famous for. The one that has the most popularity by far is Jack and Diane. Tell us about that song, David. Yeah, Jack and Diane. It's it's his only uh, number one hit, and uh, it's also a song that when he first finished recording it, he hated, and he said that he was going to eliminate it from the record. And his entire band kind of surrounded him in a circle and said, you know, this is a great song and, and we're, we're very passionate about it. And we think people will love it. And they convinced him to put, to leave it on the record. So he has jokingly said, you know, that just shows you how much I know about what songs will become hits. Uh, originally he wrote it about an interracial couple, you know, for people who followed John Mellencamp's career, uh, they're more than aware that that race and race relations and racism is, is a bit of an obsession with Mellencamp. He's written many, many songs about those subjects. And Jack and Diane was going to be the first. Uh, but he found that perhaps going back to your earlier question and, and his craft, he couldn't quite tell the story the way that he thought it needed to be told. So the more he simplified the lyrics, uh, the better the song worked. Mm. So he removed some of those racial details and some of those other storytelling details, uh, which perhaps was for the best, because one of the reasons the song resonates so much is that Jack and Diane is pretty much any high school teenage couple. I mean, you know, I was in a Jack and Diane relationship. Uh, you know, all my friends were in Jack and Di Diane re relationships. It's one of those songs of universal uh, applicability and relatability. But when he, uh, as I said, when he finished recording it, he didn't want to put it on the record. His, his band members talked him into leaving it on the record. And then uh, he has said that it was the fans of the song that really convinced him to like it and appreciate it himself because he would hit the stage and, and the fans would just take over singing it. And it's one of those songs that I think 
I argue in the book, it's actually quite a sophisticated song in terms of its musicality. It's this uh, dynamic and dramatic blend of down-home folk acoustic music and uh, power riff rock and roll. And then it also, uh, even though he kept working to simplify the lyrics and make them more vague, uh, it captures how life is almost always simultaneously triumphant and melancholic, almost always joyful and sad. Uh, if, if you read those lyrics and listen to the song, uh, first of all, you find that the line, uh, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone, is certainly not a happy-go-lucky sentiment. Uh, but even as this couple is having fun and experiencing the thrill of romance, uh, there's this underlying element of sadness, uh, the awareness that uh, their youth and perhaps their youthful, carefree quality uh, will soon come to an end and adulthood will bring its own joys, but will, it will also bring its own responsibilities and burdens. So it's actually, you know, a pretty complicated song about just the human experience. I believe the video was also an afterthought. Like they just made it on the cheap and didn't think much of it. And then it became one of the most popular MTV videos. Yeah. And that's similar to, see, he had a video for a song called I Need a Lover. Mm -hmm. uh, that he recorded for an Australian TV production. And when MTV started, I Need a Lover was one of the first videos they played just because it existed. Yeah, Nobody else was making music videos. Uh, and it was kind of a similar approach with Jack and Diane. You know, MTV was in its embryonic stage. And record companies and recording artists weren't putting much thought or investment in videos uh, because th they didn't know if they would catch on. They didn't know if they would have any popularity. So that cheaply produced music video for Jack and Diane with the different boxes of images, you know, emerging into the foreground, uh, which now appears really charming and appears to really capture the simplicity of the song uh, was, as you say, just an afterthought. It was just a lucky accident. <laughs> I want to get into some more Mellencamp songs, but David Maschiatra, I would like to hear a little bit about your background and how writing this book compares to writing the book you wrote about another very famous singer-songwriter, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, thanks for that. So I grew up in a small town, no pun intended, uh, Lansing, Illinois. And that's uh, kind of right on the Illinois-Indiana border. And that's one of the reasons why Mellencamp's music resonated with me so strongly is that I, I recognized uh, the characters, the subject matter in my own life, my own surrounding. Uh, from the earliest age I can remember, I had an interest in writing and uh, I began writing after graduating from the University of St. Francis uh, small college in Joliet, Illinois for the Joliet Herald News, a small newspaper. And since then I've written for a wide variety of national publications like Salon and Los Angeles Review of Books and the music journal, No Depression, 
which I'm sure many of your listeners know. And uh, the right now I live in a small town in Indiana uh, with my wife, Sarah, and I teach at Indiana University Northwest, and I've written five books total. The latest is uh, I Am Somebody, Why Jesse Jackson Matters. Uh, so if any of your listeners are interested in politics and history, uh, I think that book would certainly uh, appeal to them. But Working on a Dream, The Progressive Political Vision of Bruce Springsteen was my first book. It came out in the year 2010. And writing that book differed from the approach I took with the Mellencamp book, because when I wrote Working on a Dream, there were already, I think at the time, 18 or 19 biographies of Springsteen in print. Mm -hmm. So... I thought that what I could do, how I could make a unique contribution to the study of Bruce Springsteen's music was blending my two biggest interests and passions, uh, which were for politics and for rock and roll music, and use Springsteen's music, particularly his music that deals with political and social and economic class issues, uh, as a predicate to explore uh, American politics and American political culture. Uh, it's a book that was in a way a little ahead of its time because now that type of writing has become very popular. Uh, but when I did it, when Working on a Dream came out, it wasn't nearly as prevalent. When I decided to write a book about John Mellencamp and when the University Press of Kentucky offered me a publication deal for it, uh, I wanted to uh, take, first of all, a more straightforward biographical approach and deal with Mellencamp's life more thoroughly than I did with Springsteen's life. The book on Springsteen was more of just music criticism and analysis. Uh, and I also wanted to uh, inject my own experience living in a small town in the Midwest mm -hmm. into the exploration of Mellencamp's music because uh, his music, although it can have universal appeal and he has admirers all around the world, uh, is so much anchored in uh, the American Midwest that I wanted the book to act as not only a biography of John Mellencamp and a study of his music, but an impressionistic look at uh, the American heartland and uh, the certain culture that exists in small towns in states like Indiana and Illinois. Stay tuned for more Song Facts podcast right after this. Okay, so you're in a very good position to understand small town culture. And Mellencamp, of course, one of his big songs, which has kind of defined him, is the song Small Town. which has kind of given him given rise to the whole voice of the heartland tag. Talk about that song for us, please. 
Yeah, Small Town is one of Mellencamp's most enduring and I think best songs. Uh, he wrote it in 1984. He was with his aunt and he was doing laundry and he was looking out the window and the song just came to him. And uh, he said that he wanted to write a song about his experience and he wanted to write a song that would tell people you don't have to live in New York or Los Angeles or even Chicago to have a fulfilling life. Um, and that really resonated with me because that's exactly how I felt and how I still feel. And Mellencamp said that he all he did was look out his window and tell the truth. And in this particular case, it was truth that made people feel good about themselves. He said that sometimes he's tried to tell the truth in other songs, and perhaps it's a truth that's a little uglier or a little harder to take and that might anger some people. Uh, but he said that the truth is the truth and the truth is good. Uh, whether you put it in an angry box or a happy box, the truth is the truth and therefore it's important and it's good. And uh, the song Small Town, I think, is an immensely important song in the recent history of American music because of exactly what he said, that it, it celebrates the life that one can live in a town that is off the cultural map. And it affirms the dignity and integrity and value of the people who reside within those towns. And he has famously said that when he wrote it, it wasn't his intention to become the voice of the heartland or the keeper of the small town. Uh, but with all due respect to Mr. Mellencamp, I don't think that he really gets to decide because it's like Bob Dylan. He has said that he didn't want to become the voice of his generation in the 60s. Well, once art exists uh, out inside the wider culture, it really becomes out of the control of the creator. And it becomes something that embeds itself in the lives of the listeners if we're talking about music. And for me, it, it uh, affirmed the value and the dignity and the relevance of where I lived. And other writers have discussed that. So for example, Chuck Klusterman, who's a, a brilliant pop culture writer and music critic, uh, I mean, in his book, Detroit Rock City, which is about being a young heavy metal fan while living in South Dakota, uh, he mm -hmm. writes about how Mellencamp was the one uh, non-heavy metal artist that he loved because he felt that Mellencamp uh, not only understood people like him and those living in South Dakota, but celebrated him. And he was unique uh, in that respect. So uh, that's what the song is meant to me. And I'm sure that's what the song means to, to many people. And in my book, I try to connect what Mellencamp accomplished with that song and what he was able to accomplish by remaining in Indiana with other artists of various mediums who did the same thing. So painters like Grant Wood, Grant mm -hmm. Wood painted life in Iowa. Uh, and Thomas Hart Benton, he painted life in Wisconsin. You know, they didn't move to New York or Los Angeles or anywhere like that. They thought that there was a, 
a great value and service to uh, depicting life as it surrounded them in their own Midwestern small towns. Uh, novelists like Larry McMurtry, who wrote about the small towns of Texas, or Jim Harrison about the small towns of Michigan. Uh, there's, there's an entire school of artistry that's telling these stories. And sometimes critics will, uh, if not outright disparage, then dismiss them as regionalists. Uh, but one of the things that I try to do in my book is argue that uh, they should not be dismissed, that they're offering a very important uh, and, and valuable service, uh, not only to their audiences, but to the culture at large. Well, in so many movies, TV shows, books, you get the narrative of we got to get out of this podunk town. There's nothing to do here. I have to make it in the big city. So how did that make you feel when you living in a small town are inundated with this kind of thing? But then Mellencamp comes along. Well, that's exactly it. You, you capture it well, that it was in its own way countercultural and subversive but countercultural and submersive in such a way that provided affirmation. I mean, uh, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because uh, my hero growing up was my grandfather, who was, a, in fact, I dedicate the book to my grandfather. He was a World War II veteran, and he worked his entire life in a limestone quarry in a small town of Thornton, Illinois. And he was a, a man of such a decency and integrity and strength and pride. And he was a great family man. And when I heard a song like Minutes to Memories, uh, which is on the same record as Small Town, uh, the Scarecrow record, uh, to me, that song, Mellencamp wrote it about his grandfather, but with lyrics like, I've earned every dollar that passed through my hand. My family and friends are the best things I've known. An honest man's pillow is his peace of mind. Uh, to me, that song was about my grandfather. Mm. And it has influenced my entire approach to journalism and to political commentary in that I chose to go to, to, go to school, uh, both in college and then graduate school uh, in this area. I, I got my master's degree from Valparaiso University in Valparaiso, Indiana. And I've chosen to remain here. And even if I'm writing about, say, a national political issue, I could bring to bear a certain perspective uh, from a small town in Indiana that perhaps someone who lives in Washington, D.C. or New York, as valuable as their perspective and insight might be, uh, cannot offer. Another major song in John Mellencamp's career, which says a lot about him, is Pop Singer, which came out in 1989. Can you talk about that song for us, please, David? 
Yes. Uh, so Pop Singer is on a record called Big Daddy, and it was the lead single from that record. And in, in the song is kind of a, a, a funky blend of uh, folk music and R&B and uh, old school R&B. And uh, the song begins by saying, I never wanted to be no pop singer. I never wanted to write no pop songs. Uh, and that was because he talks about how he found it embarrassing and cringeworthy to see himself referred to as a pop singer. Uh, in various newspaper stories or from DJs on the radio, because he said that he aspired to do something authentic with his music beyond uh, appealing to commercial trends uh, like Bob Dylan or like John Prine or like... Uh, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, you know, the biggest influences on his music and also like other artists he admired, like Ernest Hemingway or Larry McMurtry. Uh, so it was a song that declared a passion and mission for authentic expression in music as opposed to uh, pandering to the lowest common denominator in order to sell the most records possible or the most tickets possible. Mm -hmm. And it's a song now that might seem quaint to people because uh, you turn on the TV now and almost every entertainer is doing a commercial for some product. Uh, almost every entertainer is endorsing a product. And the New York Times recently ran a story about how we're living in the age of the celebrity endorsement. Well, when Mellencamp put out that song, Pop Singer, uh, that was still controversial. One would be called selling out, uh, a sellout, if they appeared in a commercial or sold their song to a major corporation for use in a commercial. So with that song, Mellencamp was coming down on the side of uh, artistic integrity and independence. Uh, he did say that many people misinterpret it as meaning I never wanted to make music. And some people, some of his fans were a little angry with the song. Uh, but that was, of course, how never how he intended it. So when I read your book, I saw that you're discussing Cherry Bomb. And you have the lyric in there. That's when a sport was a sport, which I thought was maybe a typo. But then I learned that the actual printed lyric is sport was a sport. But I have always, every single time, heard that as that's when a smoke was a smoke. That's when and grooving was grooving. <laughs> is it really sport was a sport? Yeah, I mean, according to all of my research, and, and I remember having to convince my dad uh, th that it was sport and not smoke. Uh, my dad was insistent that it was smoke. And my dad said that 
that was one of his favorite lyrics. That's when a smoke was a smoke. So he yeah. was disappointed. So, uh, you know, my interpretation of the line, that's when a sport was a sport was uh, the, the friendly term of endearment sport, like, Hey, sport. Uh, so, so somebody that you could trust somebody with whom you could have a feeling of camaraderie, uh, kind of a small town feeling of, uh, relatability and reliability and, uh, cherry bomb was very much influenced by a certain kind of music called Carolina soul that he heard while vacationing, uh, at Myrtle beach. But, uh, you, the first time I visited the town of Seymour, uh, on Chestnut Street, there was a club called the Chatterbox. And that was the club that he was singing about, but he changed it from Chatterbox to Cherry Bomb, uh, just for musical reasons. Mm -hmm. Cherry Bomb is a lot easier to sing and sounds much more musical and song than uh, the harsh syllables of, of Chatterbox. But yeah, it is sport, uh, and and you're not you're far from the first to express shock. The, the chatterbox would have been like a teen club because he was in there as a teenager. Yes, doing this, huh? So Mellencamp, we're talking about these songs, and the vast majority of his hits came in the '80s, which was a tremendous run, and he had some hits into the '90s as well. But the guy has been making music up until today he's still doing it he's always creating so he has this vast library of songs that many casual listeners have never heard what i'd like you to do david is to just pick out one of those songs that might be a hidden gem of sorts and tell us about it hmm i i can two immediately come to mind if i can cheat and name two i promise i'll be brief uh, the, the first one is from Big Daddy, which I think is his best record, uh, and it's called Theo and Weird Henry. And it's about two guys that he actually knew growing up. And to me, it's, it's a, first of all, it's a great song. It has a really killer arrangement, the interplay between guitar and violin. And Kenny Araniff plays a uh, spectacular drum part, as he always did. And Mellencamp's vocal on it is really effectual and moving. But it's, it's one of the most beautiful tributes to friendship that I've ever heard in song. Uh, it's it's like a Larry McMurtry story put to music, and he's able to capture this this special feeling of uh, insider status that close friends have amongst each other. Like that, you're the only one in the world who understands each other, and it always made me think of my best friend growing up and. Uh, you know, now for various reasons, I'm, I'm not in touch with that guy. And so now it's a very sad song for me to hear. And when I told Mellencamp that, he said that the two guys who he named Theo and Weird Henry, those weren't their actual names, uh, they're both deceased now. So it's become a very sad song for him as well. 
the other song I would say is a really obscure, underappreciated gem is a song he did for a documentary called America's Heart and Soul, which profiles various artists and entrepreneurs across the country. And the song is called The World Don't Bother Me None. And that's a much more recent song that was put out in kind of, I think maybe like 2005. Uh, and that's a killer slide guitar bluesy song that really pays tribute to the best of the American spirit, just as the opera, the, the documentary does. And uh, really captures a certain sense of independence and integrity that oddly enough, compliments pop singer well. Mm -hmm. So I would tell fans to go listen to those two songs, Theo and Weird Henry and The World Don't Bother Me None. So I have a theory on Mellencamp's superpower. What gives him the ability to have these insights and be so good as both a painter and a songwriter? I once heard him say something terrible about television. Something like, if you just want to turn your brain off, if you don't want to actually think, I just watch television. Otherwise, you can listen to my music. <laughs> and I also heard, you know, Linda Ronstadt, for example, famously has never owned a computer. She spends her time listening to music, reading poetry, that kind of thing. Uh, I get the sense that Mellencamp simply doesn't have this kind of like guilty pleasure that he doesn't go binge watch The Office in his spare time to turn off his brain. What sense do you get? <laughs> yeah and and he uh he never uses a computer mm. uh he does have a uh smartphone and when i interviewed him he was uh struggling to send a text message uh to his his girlfriend at the time who i think was meg ryan uh so he's you know he's adopted to the modern world in that limited respect but uh, he once said that he lives the life of an artist, meaning that uh, he sees it as not only an opportunity, but a privilege. And he has to make the best use of the opportunity and privilege possible by striving to create something new every day, whether it's a painting, whether it's a uh, song. He also writes poetry. He's never published any of it, but uh, I'd love to, to read some of those. And therefore, uh, those distractions that you describe are kind of a luxury he can't afford. Uh, I apply that to my life as a writer, and I think everyone can apply that by, uh, in a countercultural and subversive way, thinking about how so much in the United States of America pushes us towards consumption, uh, whether it's watching television, buying products, playing video games, whatever. Uh, even though it's much harder work and it's, it's uh, you know, not as tempting sometimes, uh, one will find so much more gratification and, and deep spiritual pleasure through creativity. 
So it's a contrast between creativity and consumption. And uh, even those of us who work nine to five and have various responsibilities and burdens and can't afford to live a leisurely lifestyle like uh, a, you know, a recording artist who's made millions of dollars uh, can, at the ex- to the extent that it's possible, uh, prioritize creativity over consumption. And that's, that doesn't necessarily just mean the arts. I mean, it could, it could mean, uh, you know, I have friends who are part of an environmentalist group in the town where I live. So it could be something as simple as organizing a a neighborhood cleanup or creating a community garden, Uh, something that takes us out of the consumer cultural model and empowers our own sense of agency and enlarges our intellect and enlarges our spirit. Uh, Somebody who certainly would spend a life doing that would have a superpower, as you put it, Uh, but we can all adopt that lifestyle model more or less to a certain extent. I guess it gives him a kind of focus that means when you're spending time with him, he's not going to be pulling out his phone checking weather and that kind of thing, he's really going to be uh, able to dial in. And when you think about it, I'm, I'm just picturing this now. He really zigged when zagging would have been the more appropriate thing, which would have been recording in a major studio and surrounding yourself with the latest technology. But he didn't even really use like synthesizers or anything like that. Never tried to follow a musical trend, did he? No, uh yeah, and, and even some of his when even some of his peers were embracing some of those trends, like Springsteen, uh, you know, he went the opposite direction and started putting traditional in- instruments in his music: uh, the violin, the accordion, uh, the dobro, the harmonica, uh, and that was right in the middle of the 1980s when the synthesizers were all the rage, and that big can drum sound was all the rage. Yeah. Uh, and he, he never did that. He went in the opposite direction. And if you listen to Lonesome Jubilee, uh, he termed it at the time, gypsy rock, uh, meaning making rock and roll, but having this sense of exploration of traditional culture in the craftsmanship of rock and roll. So therefore, again, bringing in these traditional instruments and incorporating country sounds and folk sounds and blues sounds. Uh, And that I think is one of the most uncredited innovations in recent music history, because when Mellencamp did that, uh, it was entirely opposite of the trend and it preceded the alt country movement mm. that uh, you know Jeff T- Tweedy and Jay Fair and and Ryan Adams and Jillian Welch and Lucinda Williams and others created uh, in the early '90s. It, it preceded the soundtrack for Oh Brother Where Art Thou, which was such a commercial smash and brought back traditional music. Uh, it preceded. Uh, the reemergence of traditional music in pop culture. And yet it's something that very few critics and journalists uh, correctly identify as at least in a mainstream presence uh, originated with that John Mellencamp music, the Lonesome Jubilee. I mean, while other rock and roll 
performers were recording hair metal or were recording uh, synth heavy, heavy music, like you described, you know, he was bringing in violinists and accordions, accordion players and uh, singing about uh, poverty in the Midwest and singing about family farmers and uh, racial injustice and just everyday living in towns like Seymour, Indiana or Lansing, Illinois. So it was actually a pretty remarkable uh, innovation. I remember I spoke with Michelle and Deggio Cello, who did that cover of Wild Night in maybe 1993 with Mellencamp. And Mellencamp had her come to his studio. As you brush your shoes, And she said that it was a wonderful experience, not only because he was really nice to her, as you said earlier, that he gives you his full attention and he's really generous, but also she was in the mode of digital recording, progression, electronic music, and here he is just stripping it down to basics and being very organic. And that made her reevaluate the way that she made music and she shifted to a much more organic style. And as a bass player, it worked out really well for her. Yeah. And, and that cover version of Wild Night is uh, a great version. And Van Morrison was, of course, one of the, the biggest influences on Mellencamp, uh, who I left out earlier when I was naming some of his influences. Uh, the great story about that, uh, that version of Wild Night is she was playing that bass line and singing the song to herself while they were warming up. And they had completed the Dance Naked record, the one on which that appears, or so they thought. And Mellencamp was going over the, the tapes of the recording sessions, and he heard her doing that to warm up. And the light bulb clicked on, and he mm -hmm. said, we've got to record a duet just like that. So he brought her back. And they recorded that version of Wild Night. And in its own sense, that story demonstrates the value of having a more organic approach. Uh, if things are much more technologically driven and uh, planned according to a pop formula, you're not going to have those uh, improvisational, unplanned moments of brilliance uh, such as that one. And... Uh, those Mellencamp records, they don't sound dated. Uh, once when I interviewed Warren Haynes, uh, you know, the musical titan of Government Mule and Allman Brothers fame, uh, he said, we live in an era now where you can push a button on a computer to make a bad singer sound good, and you could push a button on a computer to make a good singer sound great, but no one will ever have a button they could push on a computer to make somebody sound like Otis Redding or Aretha Franklin. Mm -hmm. uh, in that respect, the, the more organic approach, uh, even if it doesn't seem so at the time, uh, ages much better and maintains a certain 
uh, power that the computer-driven, technological-driven approach just cannot replicate because uh, the human voice and these human instruments uh, date back hundreds, thousands of years, and it taps into something primal and spiritual uh, that, as Haynes is uh, uh, explaining, a computer can never emulate. David Maschiata, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. David is the author of Mellencamp, American Troubadour, which I would highly recommend, a tremendous book with lots of insights on Mellencamp's life and music. This is the Song Facts podcast, a proud partner of the Pantheon Network. The producer is Corey O'Flanagan, who is also the regular host. I'm Carl Weiser, guest hosting for Corey. Thank you so much for listening. And a big thank you to Carl for hosting and for David for writing such an amazing book. John Mellencamp was such a big part of my musical upbringing with my mom being such a huge fan, and I really liked revisiting a lot of these songs. As always, guys, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. See ya! Get your song facts It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.